Today we're at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, which is a huge NASA base, kind of on the outskirts of Washington, D.C., in this amazing building called the Integration and Test Facility. It's Building 29. It's almost like some fantasy garage. So much of science is people sitting at their computers. We're all just in our little cubicles. We're all working away on our laptops, working with our data. But this is a place where people are are, cutting metal. (laughs) You can actually look in the windows of, of clean rooms, rooms that are even cleaner than an operating room in a hospital. There are these giant doors everywhere that are so big because entire spacecraft have to be rolled through as they go from one test chamber to another. But this is a government facility. There's a lot of cinder block hallways. There's a lot of old concrete floors. The buildings kind of resemble public schools, like you'd find pretty much anywhere across the country. But there's something undeniably magical about walking around these nondescript offices. And you realize you're walking past some of the most brilliant minds on the planet. So I walk down one of these painted cinder block hallways, and there is the office of Dr. John Mather. John won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 2006 for the COBE project. They were able to make an image of the very first light that ever flew through the universe. This over here is a model of the Cosmic Background Explorer, the COBE satellite. It's got some nice reflective gold coating here. Yes, it's got the... Cool. I have have a little one. I used to have a little one. I sent it off to the Nobel Museum in Stockholm. <laughs> John's a humble guy. He's very quick to share credit. And he was happy to show me around his office. This little thing is a crocheted model of the Aww. Kobe satellite. Isn't that sweet? That's very cute. The, this is completely quiet because it's crocheted. <laughs> From PRX, this is Orbital Path, a show about the cosmos and our place in it. I'm Michelle Fowler. On this episode, we've got the rare chance to hear John Mather tell us, first person, about one of the most remarkable discoveries of modern astronomy. One of the things that really amazes me is that there really was a first light that we can see in the universe. This is one of my favorite stories in all of astronomy. We actually can see to different times. So I asked John Mather how that works. Each of us has uh, time machines in our face right here. We have two eyes. We look at things as they were when light was sent out to us and not as they are now because time has passed during the time that light traveled to us. So we can see back in time by looking at things that are really far away. If you look at something that's far enough, you can see almost all the way back to the beginning of time. When you look farther and farther out into the universe, the light has taken greater and greater amounts of time to reach you. So, say, Jupiter, I mean, maybe you're looking at something that's a couple hours old. Mm -hmm. You know, the sun famously is about eight minutes away as far as light travel time. The nearest large galaxy to us, Andromeda, is about two million light years. So Mm -hmm. going at 186,000 miles per second, the light took two million years to get to us. And that's what you would see in the sky tonight is a view of what Andromeda looked like two million years ago. How far back can we see and and what changes do we see as we look farther back? Oh, golly. Well, uh, as we look farther back in time by looking farther away in space, uh, we see that the galaxies were different. What looks like big pinwheels and giant elliptical things to us, um, they were a lot smaller in the early times and more numerous. And then when you go far enough out, you basically can't find them anymore. So basically you run the movie backwards. I mean, so what we see now is that the universe is getting bigger and bigger. The galaxies are getting farther and farther apart. There's no empty center to the universe. Yes, that's right. As far as we can tell, the whole universe is infinite, which means it keeps on going beyond and beyond. There's no limit. You cannot get to the edge. 
So even when it was uh, very compressed, it was still infinite. This is very different from what a lot of people think of because we gave it this name called the Big Bang, which sounds just like a firecracker, but this is exactly the opposite of what astronomers have really seen. So the universe is expanding into itself, and uh, this story, by the way, also tells us it must have been really hot when it was young. So if it were really hot when it was young, uh, where did the heat go? The heat must still be here, so let's go look for it. So that was predicted back in 1948. Nobody went to look at the time. It was discovered by accident in 1965, and it's called now the Cosmic Microwave Background Radiation because we pick it up with microwave equipment. A Nobel Prize was given for that discovery. Time passed. Uh, I got to be a graduate student, and it was time to go look for a thesis project. And so my advisor said, we're going to go measure this radiation. Uh, let's try. My particular experiments did not work well, but nevertheless, I ended up getting a job at NASA. And then NASA said, we want proposals for new satellite missions. I said, let's go measure that stuff. It was 1974. So that was just five years after NASA had put the Apollo astronauts on the moon. So uh, we were wondering here at NASA, although I didn't know about it yet, what are we going to do next? So we built a satellite, and it went up, and it worked, and it measured that cosmic heat really, really well. COBE is the cosmic background explorer. The background that we're looking for is microwave radiation that comes from the universe everywhere. And uh, 15 years later, after that proposal was first sent in, our project went into space. Do you remember anything from that day about what the launch was like, the feeling? Well, it was kind of scary because everybody was worried about the high-altitude winds, which could uh, deflect the rocket and make it break up during the, uh, during the launch. We launched the Cosmic Background Explorer from California. Uh, at our launch, it was in November, November 18th, 1989, and it was just before dawn. And so it was cold out there. We were standing out there in our parkas waiting for the, uh, for the launch. And uh, the countdown was going along, and the big worry was, well, what about the wind? And so everybody's sort of fidgety about this. And uh, we're not standing next to the rocket. We're miles and miles away from it. But suddenly the sky lights up, and there's this brilliant, brilliant light coming off. And then uh, some while later, you finally get the sound waves because you're standing so far away. Uh, we saw afterwards that indeed there were really high altitude winds, and the trail that the rocket left starts off straight, and then it gets stretched down to into corkscrew because the wind is so high up there, and then it was pretty close to being able to wreck the rocket. Then your rocket starts to go up into space, and from where we're standing, the trail wrapped right around the moon. So it was beautiful to look at, too. So um, before the Cosmic Background Explorer was launched, uh, we had a lot of uncertainty in cosmology. It was a very uh, tricky subject, very speculative. We had wild ideas about things that might have been different from how they turned out to be. Maybe the universe had an infinite age uh, in the steady state theory. And it wasn't very popular, and we thought it was wrong, but uh, hadn't proved it. What if it was cold at the beginning? Or what if there were all kinds of wild explosions or uh, strange mystery particles that had never been detected before? So uh, maybe this Big Bang story was incorrect. Scientists hope that data from the COBE instruments will remove some of the mystery from such murky matters as the nature of the Big Bang. Theory has it that this cataclysmic explosion started the expansion of the universe about 15 billion years ago. That's audio from a vintage 1989 video from NASA. It was released just before the launch of the COBE satellite, when the Big Bang was still in question. So as COBE showed, there was a moment as the universe was expanding. It was about 400,000 years after the start. 
that the universe first became transparent to light. And and that's what the mission you worked on actually took yes, a picture we took, of. Yes, <laughs> we took a baby picture of the universe. <laughs> Look for this cosmic heat that came from the very earliest moments, and then you can map that. And then when it became cool enough by expanding, uh, then it became transparent. So this light that was then, this heat radiation that was then, uh, has traveled in a straight line to our detectors ever since. How did it come to be an idea that there was a beginning of time? Well, uh, for a long time, people had no idea. And uh, the real first clue that we got was uh, an observation from uh, astronomers who saw that the distant galaxies are running away from us in a pattern. And the farther away they are, the faster they're going. So you say, well, that's pretty weird. Uh, but you make a graph and you can say, well, how long did it take for that to happen? So you divide the distance they are by the speed that they're going and you get the same number and that's the age of the universe. <laughs> and that was 1929. Mm -hmm. So uh, we astronomers were forced into this by observations. We didn't think it up. Now, can you tell us a bit about what the universe was like at that time and why there was a moment when finally light could actually fly freely? Yes. Well, early on, uh, we imagined the universe was trillions and trillions and trillions of degrees, and all the particles that we now think of uh, would have been completely loose and free and running around. So the heat and light that were there then would have bounced off these particles uh, very quickly. So that's like opaque. That's like a fog. And then uh, as the universe cooled off, the atoms were able to form, and the atoms are able to um, be transparent. The light was no longer bouncing off of little things all the time, and the fog cleared up. So the heat radiation that was there then was now free to travel through space instead of bouncing off of things. That's how we see it now. We can get a picture of the early universe as the fog was clearing. What was the whole universe like? What could you compare it oh, to? Oh, golly. Well, the, the universe was about a billion times denser than it is now, uh, but it was before there was any object to notice. No stars, no galaxies, no planets, no anything. It was just gas and heat. This is one of the most profound stories in all of astronomy. You know, as a as a, a human being, I certainly have some some hydrogen and probably not much helium in me, but I'm made of all kinds of other stuff like calcium and oxygen and iron and carbon. And at the time that we're talking about in the universe, none of those atoms existed. That's right. Just only the hydrogen and helium. And so, of course, then the big question is, well, what happened then? How did we turn up? So after the expansion was stopping in some places because the gravity was strong enough, then the stars could be formed uh, from hydrogen and helium. The sun and all the other stars are big nuclear reactors, so they turn fuel into other stuff. And then after they burned out uh, through the nuclear reactions uh, in their course, uh, when they used up all the fuel that they had, they'd blow up. So when that stuff comes back out into space, it can have carbon and oxygen and nitrogen and iron, calcium and uh, sulfur and uh, not, everything, everything that, that it we're takes. Made of. <laughs> everything you see around you was actually released in the stars that had burned up the hydrogen and helium to make them. So we are stardust, and that's how it happened. That dust has been traveling a long distance, too, uh, since it was first released. Maybe hundreds of millions of light years. Maybe it came from another galaxy. Mm -hmm. So we're sitting here, and we don't know when we're looking at each other, uh, having a conversation, that we're talking to atoms that traveled through space millions and millions of light years and had an amazing history all themselves. It 
And the thing that I, I really want to sit people down sometimes and talk to them about is, you know, this isn't something that we just imagined or came up because it sounded like a good story, that the, the, the specialized telescopes that you have worked on in your career actually see so far away that you're really looking back to a time when there weren't any of these atoms or stars or galaxies. It's real. You can take a picture of it. Absolutely. We take a picture of it as it was then, and then we have to figure out how did it work. So we have the evidence now, uh, and we are forced into this picture. So early on, there was this superheated soup of tiny particles. And there's a big question here. How did we get stuff out of this early, super smooth universe? It was actually the COBE satellite that helped answer that question. A couple of years later, um, we detected the cosmic background had hot and cold spots in it, which was completely unknown before that. Some people guessed that it would be true. Some people said it had to be true. Other people said, nah. And so uh, it was a huge discovery for us to be able to say, uh, you know, there were hot and cold spots. So there were areas in the universe 400,000 years after the Big Bang that were a little bit warmer, a little bit colder. But the difference wasn't that much, was it? No, just about, pardon, 100,000. Jake. <laughs> extremely, extremely, extremely small bumps. And that was the early universe was very, very smooth and very, very flat. Uh, as far as our human perception would have been concerned. But it was just enough. And so just enough to stop the expansion in places and have galaxies form. And the missions that you led actually made that measurement. You could actually measure something where the difference is one in 100,000, and you're looking at something that is billions of years old and many, many <laughs> billions of light years away, and you could actually measure those tiny variations. Yeah, we actually did, and we almost couldn't. Uh, we just have, were barely good enough to measure that thing for the first time. And now, because we can say that, we can say we know how the whole thing works. We can make a computer simulation of how the early universe turned into galaxies. And uh, it's very beautiful to watch in the movies now. Uh, supercomputers exist that didn't exist in 1989. And so now it's kind of convincing. And you say, well, we must have always known that. But the answer is no, we didn't. It was a big discovery. Now, we were talking a bit about the idea of first light, and with, uh, with Kobe and uh, the microwave background, it's the first light that the universe actually allowed to fly freely. It was the first time the universe became transparent to light. You're involved with a mission right now that is also going to be seeing some types of first light, the, the James Webb Space Telescope. And while this isn't looking quite so far back in time as the cosmic microwave background, you're hoping to see some of the first galaxies form and possibly some evidence of the first starlight. Absolutely. That's one of the hard objectives. Um, nobody knows exactly what to look for, so how are you going to know that little smudge that you see is really what you hope? Uh, but we're building an enormous telescope. It's much bigger and more powerful than the Hubble, and it's designed to pick up infrared light, which is, uh, shows us a different view. Why infrared? The expanded universe stretches out the light from the distant galaxies, so what starts off at short wavelengths end up as long wavelengths. Also, uh, we can pick up things that are cooler than stars. Or we can even see inside dusty clouds because the infrared light will go around the dust grains instead of bouncing off of them. I just have to say, when I was a postdoc at Caltech, one of the things that they were asking me to do was sort of help the public understand why the infrared universe shows you so many things that we miss when we look at just the light that our eyes can see. And you mentioned seeing inside these, these, these dusty, dense areas in space where new stars are forming. Pretty much these days, every fire department in the United States has an infrared camera. Because when you look in, into a smoke-filled room, you can't see anything. You know, somebody could be passed out on the floor, you couldn't see them. But it's amazing, with an infrared camera, it just cuts right through that. You can see that person, you can see the whole room. 
So it's it's almost like having it's the wrong wavelength, but sort of an X-ray vision, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. And so all of these things together let us uh, work out our own history. How did the atoms uh, start off? How did they get rearranged into stars and planets and eventually make it possible for people to be here? That's fascinated me since I was little. I wanted to know where did we come from? When I was a little guy, uh, my father couldn't answer my question. So uh, now astronomers have been working on it a long time and our job now with the Webb Telescope is to look at the first stars and galaxies that happened after the Big Bang, to look at stars being born today uh, nearby with planets around them, uh, even to look at the outer solar system to see what are the evidence in our own solar system about the history of our local place and um, how did the Earth get to be like it is. Earth seems to be pretty special. Even among the solar system planets, it's the only one that's blue. The only one with an oxygen atmosphere, it's only the one at the right temperature. It's the only one with a big fat moon zooming around it, uh, giving us an eclipse. We can work on that with a new telescope. And uh, you know, we're actually in the building right now where the, the telescope was put together. And over time, you know, I watched these beautiful mirrored segments, you know, be, be putting on the frame. You know, I, I, I actually would spend my lunch break sometime just up here watching because it was fascinating and thinking not only is this gigantic thing in front of me going far away into space, you know, farther away, four times as far away as the moon, but this is what's going to discover these first stars, these first galaxies. What was it like working here and seeing that happening right in front of you? Well, it's pretty much of a thrill to see uh, something that was only a sketch or an idea or a word a few years ago coming to life. So um, this telescope is huge. Uh, it's bigger than the rocket. So it's gonna have to be folded up to even go into space. It's a transformer. It's a transformer. <laughs> it's folded up and then it unfolds. So, uh, but when it's folded out and uh, ready for business, it uh, has a hexagonal mirror made out of 18 smaller hexagons all nested together. And it functions as one giant mirror. It looks sort of like a solar energy concentrator but it's actually a galaxy energy concentrator. So uh, this big golden hexagon is the, what makes it so beautiful. And it's gold, by the way, because that's the best reflector for infrared. It's just a tiny amount of gold covering up a, a metal mirror uh, made out of beryllium. So uh, just to picture this uh, gigantic thing, which is uh, as big as a whole office, just the mirror itself. Uh, and it has a, uh, a tripod of carbon fiber that holds a little mirror out in front of it. Then it is... Uh, mounted on a structure that has all of the instruments in it. Uh, so they convert the incoming light into digits to send back to Earth, like your cell phone, only much better. And then the thing is protected by a totally gigantic uh, sun shield, a huge umbrella, uh, five layers of thin plastic. It's as big as a tennis court. So the sun never shines on the telescope itself, and the telescope will be really, really chilly, about 40 degrees Kelvin. So that's 40 degrees above absolute zero. Was, yeah, very <laughs> chilly. You make it cold so it doesn't glow. We don't want the telescope to glow and emit its own infrared. There's so many different types of first light here. I mean, I'm looking forward to all of these surprises. The James Webb Space Telescope hopefully will have the capability to look at the chemistry of atmospheres, of planets around other stars. And so, you know, we may conceivably have in the next few years the knowledge of a planet that has an oxygen-rich atmosphere, that has water vapor, that has methane, that has basically what are a lot of possible signs of life. Yeah, that's one of the coolest things we hope to be able to do. Uh, when we first designed the telescope, there weren't any known planets, so we didn't know we could. Uh, now we've got a long list of thousands and thousands of them, and some of them are good targets for this. We wait for a planet to go in front of its star, and so some of the starlight is blocked. It's a little partial eclipse, 
and some of the starlight goes through the atmosphere of the planet on its way to our telescope. And if you can figure that out, then you can say, what's the chemistry of that atmosphere? So um, little Earth with an atmosphere like ours is probably pretty hard to study. But a little bit bigger, uh, we hope to see uh, some little planet uh, with enough water to have an ocean. So it would be our first evidence ever of an ocean on a planet around another star. That's John Mather. He and George Smoot won the 2006 Nobel Prize for Physics for their work on the COBE satellite and the Big Bang. These days, Mather is the senior project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. Every time I walk away from a conversation with John Mather, I feel an interesting combination of inspiration and humility. And that really comes straight from John. I'm familiar with this now. He does this to me every single time. I've never heard him say, my Nobel Prize. He always says, our Nobel Prize, or, or NASA's Nobel Prize. And he is really aware, and he keeps us all aware, that we are privileged to be part of an incredible team of people. There is never one person that makes a new discovery. It's hundreds of people that are contributing many different things. And we're all sort of tiny parts of this incredible machine that is churning out brand new views of the universe, things that nobody ever knew before. That, to me, has always been the most inspiring thing about working in science, that the people around me inspire me and keep me humble at the same time. And together, we take our first steps into a brand new universe. Thanks for listening in on this episode of Orbital Path from PRX. We'd love for you to check out more episodes at orbital.prx.org. If you're catching this episode before August 21st, I'd especially point you to the mini-episode we did about the total eclipse of the sun. It's got all you need to prepare yourself for what I like to call the zone of totality. <laughs> and if you'd like to learn more about the Kobe mission and its discoveries, I'd encourage you to get your hands on John Mather's book, it's called The Very First Light. And, and I, I am still going to buy one of these oh, books, right? Book? Yeah, I'm going to buy a book. So yeah, here's, sure, here's, sure. My, here's my $12. Okay, very good. And, and uh, so do you have a particular way that you want your name? Michelle. Just Michelle. Just it's Michelle. two L's? Two L's. Support for Orbital Path is provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science, technology, and economic performance. More at sloan.org. This episode of Orbital Path was produced by David Schulman. Our editor is Andrea Mustaine. Special thanks to John Barth and Genevieve Sponsler, back on Watery Planet PRX. Signing off for now, I'm Michelle Thaller. A little bit of dead stardust.